Well, good morning, everybody. As you can see, we're in a series called Into the Wilderness, and this series, what we're exploring is, what is it like when we go through those seasons in our life where we're kind of wandering in a sort of wilderness? And we looked at last week, the wilderness may be for you kind of described like a desert. We had a scene from, I think it's an Oscar award-winning movie last week, uh, Three Amigos, where you kind of see wandering through the desert. Maybe for you, that's what the wilderness feels like. Uh, Maybe for some of you, it's like wandering through the forest and you just don't know how long you've been in there or where you're going to, how you're going to get out. Maybe it's a mountain kind of wilderness where, you know, there's, there's all these unknowns. But whatever it is, we go through seasons in our life where we have these wilderness experiences. And so what we're going to explore for this series is just what are we learning? What's God shaping and changing us throughout these times in our lives? Um, and we also, it's coinciding with this period of time leading up into Easter. And uh, last week we challenged you as a church and, and invited you to participate in this ancient Christian tradition called, that we call Lent in English. And uh, what it really is, is just for us to have a season where we're preparing our hearts, reflecting on the resurrection, reflecting on Easter and what Christ did. And, and part of the spiritual discipline of it is you give up something and every time you kind of crave that thing, we replace it with prayer. It reminds us of our need, our weakness without Christ and how we crave so many things. Um, and it also just is a great way to have this discipline where you say, God, just remind me to pray. Who, who or what will you pray for uh, during that season? And so we invite you to participate in that, it's amazing um, how much more I prayed this week, this past week, when you are all of a sudden craving something and say, oh, Lord, keep reminding me. And so I want to challenge you, for those of you who are doing that, keep it up. And those of you who want to start today, you're already a week in, so keep going. Or you can start now, and uh, we'd love for you to participate with that with us. Uh, join me as we pray and get started with this morning's uh, message. God, we thank you so much for today, and I pray now that... As we open up your word, God, I pray that these words would be yours, and I pray that, um, Lord, that you'd meet us in this place. And in a world where right now there's a lot of confusion, maybe there's some fears, maybe there are uh, struggles, um, burdens that people feel as we come into this place, we come with a ton of different emotions and thoughts and doubts and all kinds of things, and Lord, I pray that you'd meet us in those places this morning. We know that before the doors even open today, God, you were already present. And so now we ask that you help us be aware of your presence and meet us in this place. We give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Matthew is in the New Testament. It's about uh, three quarters of the way, maybe two-thirds through uh, your Bibles. Uh, Matthew, chapter 4. We're going to look at a story where Jesus was in the wilderness. And as we look at this uh, story here, the reminder for us is, is just that we can relate so much through that God gives us these stories to teach us and to remind us that these seasons are coming for all of us. So let's look at Matthew chapter 4. And in fact, we're going to start it at the end of chapter 3. And uh, chapter 3 ends with uh, the baptism of Jesus. Jesus is uh, coming uh, to the Jordan River and a guy named John the, Bapti- John the Baptist was baptizing people. And uh, 
As he was doing that, Jesus came and John saw him and said, oh, here's one in whose sandals I'm unfit to untie. This is our Messiah who's coming. And uh, Jesus says, yeah, but I I still want to be baptized. It was this ritual cleansing. And he's baptized. And at the end of chapter 3, verse uh, 16, I want you to see the verses here. It says, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God ascending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the story, what we're getting into today, starts off with this. And in this description of Jesus' baptism, we have a glimpse of the Trinity. You have God the Son. You have the Father proclaiming his approval. And you have this uh, image representing the Holy Spirit all there. And so this is this moment of where Jesus now is about to begin his public ministry, and God the Father affirms him, said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was very, uh, a lot of messianic language, so that everyone there who heard would know that this is who he proclaims to be, or who John is proclaiming him to be. This is the Messiah now beginning his ministry. He has full approval from God, and the Spirit is there present in his life, Now look at chapter 4, the very next verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, that seems like a disconnected two stories. You have this moment, kind of this mountaintop experience where it's, here's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and the crowds go wild. This is the Messiah. Everybody sees it. Everyone's hearing it, and and Jesus is proclaimed in the next verse, and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. On these moments when you have these kind of spiritual high points, it feels like, God, we shouldn't go to the wilderness after that. Uh, At the spiritual high point, it's time to do a Billy Graham crusade. Or something, like, Billy, step aside. I've got the Spirit of God anointing me, and we're ready to go. And so that's how the story starts, where you would think that Jesus is about to do something miraculous, cast out some demons, do something, and he's led to the wilderness and to be tempted by the devil. And right away, we're shown and reminded that the Christian life is not going to be free from trials. That even on those great experiences, those mountaintop moments, it doesn't mean that now the promise to you and to me is smooth sailing your whole life. In fact, quite the opposite, that God might be leading you because you're now ready to go in to the wilderness. And that's what we find here with Jesus. Now, let's look at the story a little more. Let me just answer a couple questions. This is a side note uh, from this message today, but the question here says to be tempted by the devil. Uh, If you're new to the faith or exploring, or even if you've been around a while, let's answer very quickly and incompletely, but the question of what is he talking about? Who's the devil? Um, Throughout scripture, there's this angel, this, this being who's created by God, and uh, has given uh, a portion of rule over the earth. And when we piece together scriptures, it seems that about a third of the created angels are part of this, and they rebel against God in the name Satan, the devil. Uh, we have them 
the tempter throughout scripture, different descriptions, is essentially what we can see as the God of this age. Not the big G God, the creator God, the one over all things, but some um, spiritual being that God has allowed to have some level of rule and reign on our earth now today. And so that's this person who's being described. And that should bring up more questions than it answers. We don't have time to get through all of that today, but we'll look for a time in the future to give a more thorough definition and description of how all that works. But here Jesus now is being led and to be tempted by the devil. Now let me say a second point. All temptation doesn't come directly from the devil. And the phrase, the devil made me do it, is an incorrect phrase. The devil didn't make you do it. And most of us probably will never directly, or I don't know, but it's not always that you're directly tempted by the devil himself. I don't necessarily need a showdown with Satan. I don't need that. Leave that to Jesus. We are tempted when we, as Christians, still have this new nature, but we battle between our flesh, our old sin nature battles, and and so we find temptation as we struggle between being a new creation and the old creation. And before Christ, we have this sin nature that we're tempted by that, just the nature of who we were originally as the fall without our new lives in Christ. You tracking with me? So uh, all temptation is not directly from the devil. Now, second thing I want you to know, that temptation also doesn't come from God. God is not tempting you with evil. According to James chapter one, verse 13, says no one when being tempted should say, God is tempting me. God is not tempted by evil, does not desire that you fall into sin and is not saying like, let me see how strong Ryan is. I'm gonna put this really great temptation in front of him. That is not the heart and the character of our loving father in heaven who wants us to fail in sin. So God is not tempting us. Now, in this case, we see Jesus, though, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he's going to be tempted by the devil. So what do we learn from this? What do we get? And the first thing that we see here in this time of season of challenge for Jesus is this principle that we need to know is the presence of trials does not mean the absence of approval. The presence of trials in your life does not mean the absence of God's approval. And when I'm talking about approval, I'm not saying approval over every single one of your behaviors. I'm saying approval about who you are and in Christ. As a follower of Jesus, we are sons and daughters of God and we are approved because of what Christ has done for us. So when God sees our lives, he doesn't see our unrighteous deeds or the deeds that make us not right with God. He sees Christ and his righteousness in Christ. So we are fully approved as sons and daughters of God. Okay, you tracking with that? It's important that we get it. We don't want to have this belief that says when we go through difficult things in life, it's because God is angry or with us. Now, certainly, there are times you may make some poor decisions that leads you into a difficult season in life. Okay, that's called reality. (laughs) But your approval as a son or daughter of God is not found in whether you are having an easy life or a difficult life. We need to get that straight. Because if we think when trials come, it means God's not approving of us, then we might start to think when we have an easy life, God must be happy with everything about us which also is false. Life has highs and lows, has things that God will allow us to go through. Some of you live lives where we'd look at and say, why everything that you do seems totally blessed? 
That might be, that's because that's your journey. And it might not be someone else's. But our approval as sons and daughters of God is not found, we can't say, oh, if I'm easy life, approval, struggles, not approved. Okay, it's important to see that. Jesus just received the ultimate approval from God. Here's my son in whom I am well pleased. Time for a trial. Let's go. So let's look at that. Uh, Also, next thing, James chapter uh, 1, verse 2 through 3 actually says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So next time you face a difficult thing, how many of you just go like, oh, this is pure joy. So great. Oh, that diagnosis, that's terrible. What a pure joy that is. <laughs> this relational struggle I'm going through, what a, that's a pure joy. You know, trials, it's hard to see them as a pure joy, but James, when he's writing, is saying, you're going through it, but it's going to shape something in you. This temptation, this season in Jesus' life was going to shape something in him. And often, these trials and struggles, these times in the wilderness, prepare us for other things. I was thinking of uh, about 10 years ago, and my wife decided to run in a marathon. And uh, uh, she's a runner, likes to run, so decided to run in one and said, okay, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to run in the, the Greece marathon from the town of Marathon to Athens. At the time, we didn't do the research to find out that it's basically uphill the whole way. So if you want to do one marathon, it's not the one to pick. But anyway, she endured through and completed it. But part of that, as she started her training, I even had a moment where I thought, you know what, maybe I'll run in that too. And then I went out and ran a mile and said, no, no, that's dumb. That's a bad idea. So I I, I can run basketball for two hours straight until I can hardly walk or breathe, and that's fine, but you tell me to run down the block, and I'm done. I'm out. So I, but I had a moment where I was watching her train for the marathon, and I thought in my mind, I bet I could probably do it. Now, I know all you runners just judged me and are casting condemnation my way, but I had this moment where I thought, it's just all about the brain saying, just keep going. And guys like me, who aren't that smart, will keep going. It's just what we do if we decide we're going to do it. And, and so I thought I could probably endure through. But as I saw her training, I realized that it wasn't just training your body to be able to suck in oxygen for 26 miles, but it was training your body to actually process the nutrients so that while you're running, your body knew how to digest and keep the energy flowing. And, and so part of the process is you kind of get longer and longer runs. And some of you in here uh, do marathons and I don't know what's wrong with you, but God bless you. And, but some of you are into that kind of thing. But I remember the day when she got up to uh, the run, it was about a 20 mile practice run, which anytime you're doing a 20 mile practice, anything, seriously. But okay, so this 20 mile practice run, but one of the th- advice that they give is have someone come with you that day, because that takes a long time. So I volunteered. I said, you know, I will go with you that day on your 20 mile run and be by your side. And I did on my bike. And, um, and I realized like how I mean, that was, it was difficult to see. I mean, 20 miles is a long way. You start getting super sore. I mean, my arms were sore. My back was getting sore. I was hungry. That's a long time to be riding your bike. (laughs) But we realized that all of those small, all of that 
and going through those seasons, that pain was needed to prepare her for a bigger challenge. And we sometimes see that through the wilderness of our life or that we go through these things that are preparing us for something else. And we see that in the life of Christ. So let's continue with the story until the next part of this. So he's led out uh, into the wilderness. And now in verse, chapter, verse two, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the most obvious Bible verse in, in the whole Bible, he became hungry. <laughs> and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered and said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And whether he physically went there or this is a vision, either way, he goes and he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against them, a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, go away, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. So what do we see in this part? Now, this section, we see three temptations. And I want to just quickly say, you, we could teach this a lot of ways. You could teach this, look how Jesus avoided temptation by uh, rehearsing truth found in Scripture. That's certainly in there, but that's not the point that we want to look at today. I want to dig down another layer of theology to see something that's happening with these temptations and how we can learn what Jesus went through and how it applies to us. So he goes through three temptations that are going to parallel the original temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. And I want you to see what is at work here. Now it starts off and he appeals to the physical. Satan comes and looks at Jesus, who's very hungry, and says, hey, if you are the son of God, now notice at the end of chapter three, he just said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So immediately Satan's like, well, if that's true, if you really are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. If you have the power to do whatever you want, why don't you make some bread because you're hungry. It's the end of 40 days. You're ready to break your fast. So he appeals to his physical nature, saying this will satisfy you. If you just had this, then you'll have what you need. In the original garden in Adam and Eve, God had provided all this food and said, just avoid one. And Satan goes to them and says, really? Look at this food. He's holding back something from you. This is actually the best of all. And they saw it and with their eyes and they said it looked good. So the first temptation here is he appeals to the physical nature. Now, Jesus responds by quoting scripture and he says, but you misunderstand, Satan, that man does not live on bread alone but from every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We live also from what God speaks into existence. And he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. Interesting that this verse was given to the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. 
And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 2 through 3, that they're going through a season of tempting and testing. And God says to them, you will, uh, he's providing this bread miraculously to them and says, but you do not live on bread alone, but from the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, what does this really mean? It doesn't mean that we can say, well, we don't need to eat or drink. As long as we read the Bible, we'll live forever. It's not saying that. What he's saying is that there's a physical side of life, but it's in, our lives are incomplete without the spiritual side. That we crave physical things. If we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have, there's food and water and, and shelter. Then you get into relationships and you get into the sexual needs and all kinds of things that we say are part of what makes us human, but we forget that part of the spiritual side. And, and God's telling us, it's not just all the stuff that you see with your eyes that you think will satisfy, but a life disconnected from your real creator is always going to fall short. So Satan appeals to Jesus in the physical here. But he says, no, life isn't just about filling myself with what I see and what I need here. There's a bigger part of this. That's where Adam and Eve misunderstood. They saw with their eyes that it looked good. And they ignored the connection with their creator. The next temptation that happens here is that he appeals to Jesus' personal gain or his popularity. He brings him to the top of this temp to the temple and says, throw yourself down. And then Satan says, oh, we're going to do Bible verses? Okay. And he quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He misquotes Psalm 91, but at least he gets close, which is a little side principle. We can misuse scripture to get ourselves into a lot of trouble, by the way. Side note. Soapbox for another time. But Satan says, hey, throw yourself down. He'll command the angels concerning you and they'll protect you. Now, why is that appealing to Jesus' popularity or to his nature? It's because he was proclaimed as the Messiah. And what better way to be told you're the Messiah for everyone to know and to know who you are than to publicly jump from the top of the temple and see the angels rescue you right there. He's saying, everyone's gonna know. This is a fast track to where you want to go. So why don't you do this? Jesus again realizes he's in a Bible memorization contest. And so he says, well, that's a good one, Satan. But there's another Bible verse you forget. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 says, do not put the Lord your God to a test. So he appealed to his personal gain or his popularity. And Jesus passes the test. What happens with Adam and Eve? As they look at this in the garden, Satan says, if you eat, they say, we can't really eat this. It looks good, but God said, we'll die. And he says, you're not going to die. You're actually going to gain more. If you just eat this, you can't question. This is going to be a power that you didn't even know you had. You're not going to die. You're going you're to be enlightened. Your eyes are going to be opened. The third temptation Appealed to Jesus' power and his glory. Takes him to a mountaintop and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Now, I've always thought, that doesn't feel like a very big temptation to Jesus being the one who created everything to say like, oh, okay, that sounds like I'm tempted by that. Why would that be a temptation for Jesus? 
Again, we have to remember, for a season of time, Satan is called the God of this age, not the big G God, the little G God, over this age, that he has some semblance of control. And he says, I can give you these kingdoms if you just bow and worship me. We also know that the Messiah will one day, every government, government and everything will be under subjection to Jesus, and he will ultimately rule over all. Every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord ultimately. That's the point. That's part of what he's accomplishing as Messiah. It's not just to save us from our sins. It's inaugurating the kingdom of God. And part of that, Satan's saying, here's the fast track. I'll just give it to you now. You can have it. Satan was offering Jesus the crown without the cross. He's saying, I'll let you have all of this if you worship me. He appealed to the power, to the glory. In the Garden of Eden, Satan looked at Adam and Eve and said, you know what will happen if you eat this? You too will become like God. You're going to be powerful. You're going to receive the glory. You're going to come up here. Don't have to do it God's way. That's the, that doesn't make sense. I've got a quicker way for you to become like God. The appeal to Jesus was, you can have the crown without the cross. It's interesting that in all three of these temptations, they parallel in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, uh, verse 16, I have it on the screen for you, says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Notice those three categories. Appealing to the physical, the lust of the flesh. Appealing to the popularity or your personal pride there, the the lust of the eyes. Oh, if I only had that, then I will have significance. And the boastful pride of life, appeal to your power, to your glory. All of these things that Satan was appealing to here, here in 1 John chapter 2, we see that they're not from the Father in heaven. These are from the world, and they ultimately are incomplete. So Satan approaches Jesus with all three of those. And in all cases, he passes the test. We're grateful for that. But the principle that I think we learn here about in the wilderness is this, that the small victories give us a bigger view of God. These small victories give us a bigger view of God. Now, why do I say that? This wasn't the only time in Jesus' life where he ever faced temptation. It doesn't make sense. We'll look at later, but he's tempted in all ways, yet without sin. So he lived a life fully human, so experiencing all the ups and downs of life that you and I face. So we know that he faces other temptations as he goes throughout life. In fact, in the end of his life, in Matthew chapter 26, near the end of the chapter, in verse 39 through 42, we see Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to be handed over, crucified. And we see him praying to the Father, and his prayer is, Father, if you can take this cup from me, which means if you could just... I know what the plan is. The plan is I'm going to be handed over and crucified and die on behalf of humanity. I know that's what's going to happen. If you could take that plan and if we could do it any other way, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to. 
And then he says, but not my will, but yours be done. See, if Jesus had learned to seek out the crown without the cross, he would have failed in that moment. But those small victories give us a bigger view of God. And sometimes you, some of you are in a wilderness right now. Some of you have come out of one. And when we come out of those and we see those little victories along the way, our view of who God is gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And really what starts to happen is these challenges in wilderness seasons start to seem smaller. Some of you go through things that I look at and say, how can you endure? It's amazing the faith, the trust that you have. It doesn't come overnight. It comes through the small victories giving you a bigger view of God. And there are people sitting among you who are amazing role models of that for the rest of us. Who their view of God gets bigger and bigger. I think of it also as this way. If you've heard of uh, maybe the movie Free Solo, uh, the, the climber Alex is into free climbing without ropes. If you're into rock climbing, you know how difficult and scary that can be. But he decided, he just, he got better and better at it until finally he climbed half, I mean, not half dome, El Capitan in the Yosemite Valley. 3,000 feet of granite without a rope. In fact, here's a picture of him doing it. Some of you right now, your hands just started to sweat. (laughs) There are no ropes on him right there. He did not that morning say, you know what I think I'm going to do with my life? Free climb. (laughs) I'm going to see if I can do it. See, he had spent years and years and years scaling smaller rocks and learning to trust, in this case, his own abilities. This is not, he's not learning to trust God, I don't think, in his life. He should be a Christian. I don't know why he's not. He, he should be. <laughs> but the small victories gave him a bigger and bigger view, in this case, of his ability of what he could accomplish. Free climbing. For us, I see this picture of when we're in the wilderness, some of you might be clinging to an edge like that right now. And some of you are just stuck there and thinking, I'm not moving. And some of you are scaling it because you understand you've been here before. You've been here before. The last thing that we see from this story is if we take another layer of theology that we see something pretty cool and profound happening here in this temptation of Jesus. As I already demonstrated to you, mankind went through our temptations and failed, but Jesus here succeeds. In Romans chapter 5, I want to invite you, if you'd like to look for yourself, to turn over there, just a few books over in the New Testament. Romans chapter 5 kind of talks about Sin entering the world through one man, talking about Adam and Eve and their sin now is part of the identity of a fallen world. But also says, but salvation comes through one person who succeeded. The righteousness of Jesus came through one. We find just a few verses through this whole chapter. Verse 12 says this, Romans chapter 5. Just as one man, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. But go down to verse 17. Verse 17, and I'm skipping a lot in there, I invite you to look at it in your own. It says, if the sin of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, so then, 
As through one sin there resulted condemnation for all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, now through the obedience of the one many will be made righteous. What we find here is the one is Jesus Christ. And the one act of righteousness wasn't just this moment in Matthew 4. It was a whole life lived sinless for you and for me and then going to the cross on our behalf and raising again on that Easter morning. That act of righteousness by Jesus undid the unrighteousness of all of mankind if we receive it. And one thing that we find here The third principle for this morning is in our weaknesses, we find ultimate strength. See, in the very thing that we were unable to do, which was justify ourselves, and the one thing we were unable to do to avoid all these temptations, to not give in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, those things we we just couldn't do. Those are our weaknesses, but in that we find our ultimate strength in the one who did not fail, but who succeeded on our behalf. And that is good news that we celebrate. And so in our weakness, we find ultimate strength. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9, through 10, 9 and 10, says, God's grace is sufficient for me, for my power, his power is made perfect in weakness. The context of that, Paul was praying what he said was a thorn in his flesh, something that he couldn't get rid of. It could have been a physical ailment. It might have been a sin struggle. I don't know what it was, but whatever it was, he he prayed and said, God, would you take this away from me? Some of you are in here this morning and have been praying for years that God would take something away from you. Maybe it's a, a, a physical struggle. Maybe it's a relational issue that you're praying, God, would you just heal this? Maybe it's a struggle with sin that you've had for years and years and you've pleaded and said, God, would you just take it away? Paul was praying that. And God's answer to him was no. One of the hardest things is when you're in the wilderness and God says, I want you to hang out there. I want you to stay there, Paul. Is it wrong to pray that God takes it away? No. But what did Paul learn? He said, what I learned is God let me deal with this my whole life because when I am weak, he is strong. It's in those moments I'm able to step aside and say, I don't have to be the hero here. In fact, I can't. I can't keep showing up and succeeding. I can't do it. I need somebody bigger than me, outside of me. I need hope in someone other than myself. And in those moments of our weakness, we find the ultimate strength. And it's in Christ. What he provides for us. The presence that he gives for us. The sin, you say, but Ryan, what about sin struggle? I keep praying to take it away. Why would God want me to have it? I don't think he wants you to have it, but you have it. And guess what that's going to do? It's going to keep teaching you about his grace. It's going to keep showing you how big and how good he actually is. We understand the good news when the news that we hear in our head over and over is bad. It's bad news. 
But when Jesus enters in, it's the ultimate good. In your weakness, we find ultimate strength. And one last thing that to bring this home and to give us hope is in Hebrews chapter four. I have this on the screen for you. In Hebrews chapter four, to sum all this up, it says this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near to confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why is this such hope here today? When we look at this, High priest means that it's the one who can communicate to God on our behalf, who, who offers the sacrifices for us, who, who is able to go to God to ask for forgiveness on our behalf. Jesus is the one now. And it says, Jesus went through all of this. The great high priest. He's been tempted in every way. He can sympathize with our pain, yet without sin. Now, I want you to notice a small thing about this verse that is so encouraging. If it ended at verse 15, I wouldn't like this. It says, he's been tempted yet without sin. If, it sto- if we stop there and say, yeah. But I've been tempted with sin. And I give in over and over again. But the conclusion here, and this is one of those radical natures of Christianity, says this. Because Jesus has been through what you've been through, And without sin, therefore, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Doesn't it make sense that it should say, he's been through it without sin, therefore, quit complaining and quit sinning. It's not that hard. Just quit failing. No, it says he's been through it He didn't sin, and you will. Therefore, approach the throne of grace with confidence. Because he gets you. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like. And instead of saying, you don't measure up, he's saying, I get it. So come to me with confidence. Approach the throne of grace, full confidence that what I did is enough. What Christ did for you is enough. So we're going to remember that now by going to a time of communion. And as we take communion for us, it's a time of just remembering. The bread represents the body of Christ, the life that he lived, the death that he died, the resurrection that he had. The juice represents the blood, the covenant in his blood, that a promise he gives to you and to me that it is enough. It is finished in Christ. So I invite you, if you go as a family, as you go as an individual, a life group, if you want to take time to pray around the room or back at your seat, take it at your own will, whenever you want. And as we do this, let's remember that we are coming to God to the throne of grace. Because he gets you. He gets you. And he invites you to the table. 
God, we thank you for this time. And I pray now, Lord, as we remember you through communion, that God, we would come to you with full confidence and find grace and mercy in our time of need. I give this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a couple songs, so take, take communion and then join us with worship when you're ready.